Hey, it's Chris, the Supply Chain Doctor and host of Supply Chain is Boring, bringing insight into the history of supply chain management and exposing you to some of the industry's thought leaders and driving forces. In this episode, we continue our discussion with Dr. Doug Lambert, the Raymond E. Mason Chair Professor Emeritus at Fisher College of Business and Academy Professor at The Ohio State University and former Director of the Global Supply Chain Forum. We're learning more about his perspective on supply chain management and the importance of true partnerships. It all sounds pretty boring. Let's see if Dr. Lambert can prove me wrong. So, Doug, you're, are you, what are you doing nowadays? Are you, are you retired or uh, you, you've got an impressive website? I retired from Ohio State uh, in December 31st of 2018 because flying back and forth to teach my classes started to become uh, a bit of a nuisance, right? Um, from, from Florida? In front of Idri, yeah. Okay. And I'd have to fly through Atlanta, so it was a whole day wasted going up, <laughs> a whole day wasted coming back. And I do it just about every week I was teaching. Now, because I had a chaired professorship in a research center, all my teaching was in the fall. So it wasn't as bad as it looked. And, and the kind of research I do is with companies, and I could fly out of Florida just as easily as Columbus. So I would fly up to Columbus during the time I wasn't teaching regular classes for meetings or to teach on executive programs, but it wasn't every week uh, like it was in the fall. So I, I'd fly up on Sunday and back Thursday or Friday and stay in a hotel that was part of our business school complex. Every now and then my wife would come with me on Sunday and we'd come back the Thursday of the next week and go to a football game on the weekend because the hotel was a five-star summit hotel, part of our six building business school complex. And it was right across from the football stadium. So it made it easy to go to games. From the sound of things, I mean, teaching can be, or being a professor can be, can be lucrative. I mean, you're living in Florida and retired, so good for you. Well, it, 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 you know, I, I think how well it turns out financially probably depends on what kind of research you do. When I went to Michigan State as a new assistant professor, I, I, I got my PhD in two years and went back to Canada as planned. But I only lasted nine months because I won this award for my dissertation. I was offered a job at Michigan State and one at Penn State. And I took the Michigan State job because my mentor had graduated from Michigan State and had served on the faculty there. And it seemed like where I ought to go. And Bowersox was there, another one of the big names in, uh, in, in logistics. And as a new assistant professor, I was paid $17,000. There was no summer money. Now, $17,000 in 76 is about 75000 76000 in today's money. But we're paying new assistant professors at Ohio State, $150, $170, giving them two-night summer money, right? And we, we don't require even that they do useful work, just that the work gets published in a select group of a journals. It's not just Ohio State. The whole education system's gotten screwy, right, with bad metrics. So... You wonder why the cost of education's gone up 1,400% in the last 40 years, as Scott Galloway says. It, it's an army of overpaid administrators, overpaid faculty members, who mostly work on research of no use to anybody. There's a good article you could read. It's called uh, The Moral Dilemma of Business School Research. I can send it to you. It's by three professors, uh, uh, Glick, Sui, and Davis. They, they say how uh, we waste $3.8 billion a year in AACSB schools in, in the U.S. producing research 
that's of no use to anybody except the guy who wrote the article or gal because they get a pay increase or a promotion for writing this stuff and putting it into a journal that would be mostly impossible for a business person to read or so onerous they wouldn't waste their time doing it and probably would have be even if they could read it uh, they'd find nothing useful in it right so galloway says that uh, we put these prices up 1400% over 40 years for a product that's basically the same now it's delivered the same 30 people in front of a, a professor or 40 or 100 in the classroom or whatever the number is the delivery's the same but the product's actually gotten worse you know, I've had students tell me that mine was the only course in a four-year degree, undergrads, not MBAs, in a four-year degree that wasn't multiple choice exams. See, that, that's, that's bloody awful. And, and so the problem is great inflation, dumbed down content, multiple choice exams has masked the fact that many of these kids, that they can't reason through a problem. They can't articulate uh, their, their thinking. They, uh, they can't write well. And, and so it's worse. Uh, we're charging more for a product that gets worse every year. And there needs to be major disruption in education. Do you know Peter Thiel? No. He was, he was one of the, the original PayPal founders. And he talks about the, uh, that's the next housing bubble is college, college cost. You know, it's over. It, it's, it's not worth the return now. But well, well, that's exactly what Galloway, if you haven't seen his videos, I'll send them to you because because he's basically saying what I've been saying, except he, he's done a better job of making people aware of it. He, he, he was on an Anderson Cooper show saying that, you know, education stuck their chin out and the fist of COVID is going to hit it. And, and what parents are starting to realize is that what they're paying this outrageous amount of money for when they watch their, their college age students uh, taking these Zoom classes, right? And, and they're saying, we're paying all this money for this? Now, now there, there are a lot of good students. I mean, the good ones are as good as they ever were. And if they've got anything to do with military, I found they were good, whether they were campus ROTC or if they were Ohio National Guard or some kid who'd gone from high school directly into the Marine Corps and after a few terms in Afghanistan or Iraq was, was back in class. I mean, these are all good students. Actually, the football players, I didn't get many of them in the business school, but they were all good because if you don't want to be pushed, you don't get to play for the Buckeyes, right? If you don't like being pushed. And the band members, the, the band members, uh, they have to qualify every week to play in the band. So those kids are used to being pushed, but a lot of them aren't. No one's ever expected anything of them, starting with mom and dad. And when you push them, they don't understand why you're pushing them. I mean, the program I went through in Canada as an undergrad, we had three Harvard type cases a day, five days a week, right? And I always thought it would be worse than dying going into class and the prof saying, start the class, Lambert, and I couldn't do it, right? So I, I, I was always prepared. And the way it worked there is when you were asked to start the class, the rest of them got points by ripping you to shreds. And so you learn to, um, to think on your feet. And it was that experience for me that enabled me to do an MBA with a half teaching load at Ivy, complete a PhD in two years at Ohio State and make full professor seven years out of my PhD program at Michigan State University. It wasn't that I was smarter than the other people. And we're, we're cheating these kids today because we don't push them hard enough. So anyway, back to Michigan. 
there was no summer money, right? And so uh, I remember in a faculty meeting once they asked me if I wanted to teach summer school. And, and I said, you know, I don't think assistant professors think they need the money that badly. And they looked at me kind of funny. Uh, but I had help. Uh, you know, there's a faculty member there. Uh, Harold Sollenberger helped me land a research project my first year at Michigan State. The research project was 17500 where they're only paying me seventeen, right? Nine of it was for me. And we ran it outside the school. In those days, they weren't concerned about running it through the school and the school getting a percentage, right? They were a little more entrepreneurial. There was 4,500 for a PhD student when they were only paying new faculty members 17 and the rest was for travel. So I started my career doing work with companies. And then we had a big freight consolidation project I had with Jay Sterling, a PhD student with Herman Miller. And then we went on and did a big customer service study for Herman Miller and had projects over the years funded by 3M and Johnson and Johnson and AT&T Bell Labs and and Johnson and Johnson. And so I, I got used to doing uh, work with, with companies. When I came to University of North Florida as an eminent scholar in 92, I was encouraged by Gary Ridenauer and 3M had spent maybe a million dollars on projects with me at, at Michigan State and University of South Florida. And a guy named Al Rose at Johnson and Johnson who'd funded projects uh, with, with me to start this this research center, and we did in the in the spring of '92. There were six companies that had all I'd done work with all of them. They were all non-competitors, and we met for two days at the Marriott Sawgrass and decided what this center would be like. And we we said the companies would all be non-competitors, so that there could be free and open sharing of ideas, and they'd pay twenty thousand dollars a year. And that for their money, they would get to determine what research we worked on. And the idea was we'd work on one major project a year. So in the early days, we, we had companies like McDonald's and Coke and 3M and Whirlpool and Goodyear Tire and Rubber, Hewlett Packard. I mean, they were all Johnson & Johnson, AT&T Network Systems. They were all you know, pretty good companies. And for that first project, it was unanimous that they said, we got to figure out how to collaborate. If our companies can't figure out how to do this, we're not going to make it long-term. We get involved in these relationships. We call them partnerships. There's all kinds of excitement at the beginning, but, but they said, you know, most of them are bad marriages that end in divorce. There was one guy actually said that. And, and, and they all agreed. And so the first project we worked on was partnership. And they gave us 18 relationships they were involved in to study. And the idea was these are good partnerships, right? 18 good partnerships that we're picking for you to study. So study them and figure out what makes them great. So we can have more of these and less of the failures because the failures are far more likely than the successes. And so we spent a couple of years on this because it, it took a while. Oh, and the other thing we did was we did in-depth interviews, personal interviews on both sides of each relationship. So with 3M and Target, we did over 35 interviews. And up to that point in time, this will give you an idea of academic research. All of research on partnership had been a survey going to one individual on one side of the relationship, right? I don't know if you remember, there used to be an old TV show called The Newlyweds Game. 
where they get these young couples in, they put the wives in a room where they couldn't hear and they'd ask the husbands questions. And then they bring the wives back out and ask them the same questions like the people didn't even know each other, right? And they'd reverse it and do it with the, the guys in the soundproof room. And so we found out that people in the same company have different views about the relationship with the other company, never mind the other company, right? And so we ended up with a couple of thousand pages of transcripts of these interviews. And then we wrote a case around each relationship so that we would have 18 cases all written the same way so we could compare them like there were the same sections in each case, right? Because the case studies that happened to be out there in the literature were all done differently. So you couldn't compare them. And the only people who saw the cases were the companies involved. So the only people who saw... McDonald's and Coke were McDonald's and Coke. The only people who saw 3M and Target were 3M and Target. And what happened then is I told them what I'd learned from all these cases. And they came to a forum meeting and told us after discussions inside their companies what they'd learned about their case. And I probably would have stopped then, right? being a professor, <laughs> you know, because I had an article here. The, these are why partnerships are successful. These are problems that cause partnerships not to work. That would get me to paper. But God bless them. They said, Doug, you know, you worked hard on this. And so we don't want you to take it personally, right? This is good. But we were hoping we'd have a tool, you know, something we could use to determine if a relationship ought to be a partnership or not be a partnership, and if it was a partnership, what it ought to look like. So we went to develop the tool. Now, at this point in time, we decided that two of the relationships, two of the cases represented relationships that the forum members said, you know, who are the best ones? Who are the best in class? And I said, well, these two are the tightest ones, right? McDonald's, Coke, and Whirlpool ERX. And we found that, that some of them that they'd given us, uh, an example was Johnson & Johnson uh, Hospital Services and UPS. They called it a partnership because a characteristic of partnership is both sides get what they want. And in this relationship, both sides got what they want. UPS got the volume that J&J had promised them. And J&J Hospital Services got the cost reduction and service improvement than, that they'd been promised. But, but this wasn't a partnership. It was simply good business. And UPS would have done the same thing, exactly the same thing for anybody who'd given them that volume of business. And a characteristic of partnership is there's customizing going on. If there's no customizing, if you do it for anybody, it's just good business. So now the two by four between the eyes for the old professor in 96, not quite so old in 96, was that you can have a win-win relationship and it doesn't need to be a partnership. And that's a good thing because you don't have the human resources to make everyone a partner, right? I mean, any of these companies where they refer to everybody as a partner, they just don't get it. They just don't get it. And the ones that are partnerships, we found out, weren't the same. And so we call them type one, type two, and type three. Why is that important? Well, because you resource them differently. A type three is like a McDonald's Coke, right? And you have CEO to CEO annual business reviews. You share your corporate strategies. You jointly decide what the metrics are going to be for success. A type one, you might share your production schedule. The level of people involved are different. 
you've got your metrics, I've got mine, we tell each other how we're doing, there's willingness to help the other guy win, but we've each got our separate metrics where they're joint metrics for the type three. So part of the reason why these relationships fail is that one or both sides going in have unrealistic expectations. You see, because we're using the same word and seeing different pictures. I just say, I say to you, we've been doing business for 10 years. Let's have a partnership. You say, great idea, Doug. Now, you don't tell me what success looks like for you. I don't tell you what success looks like for me. So we plot along. And a couple of years later, we're both ticked off, right? Because neither one of us are getting what we thought we were going to get. And what the hell's the matter with Chris? He said he wanted a partnership, right? So what we did was we came up with a model we call the partnership model. And when we showed it to the forum members, they said, this is exactly what we were looking for. The two companies that we decided were best in class came out type threes. The ones we said weren't partnerships like J&J and UPS came out no partnership. And then the others came out type ones and type twos. And we've used that model now. We've used it in North and South America, Asia Pacific, and Europe. And we've used it to structure over a hundred different relationships. I've lost track of how many in a day and a half meeting. So like the day and a half meeting between Coke and Cargill in Atlanta was 25 to 30 executives from each side in a day and a half meeting. And what we do for the first half a day is we pull them into separate rooms and we get them to articulate their business reasons for wanting a closer relationship with the folks in the other room. And we force them to a consensus. Now, this may be the first time that Coke's ever had a common vision for what success with Cargill is and the other way around. Then what we do is we bring them together, have lunch, and then each side presents their drivers to the other side. And if I see you present, and I, I don't know how I can help you, or I'm not willing to help you, I, I either need to say, look, you know, that's never going to happen. Take it off the table, right? Because we don't want people thinking they're going to get stuff they're never going to get. I mean, let's focus on what's real, not phantom stuff. And then maybe I don't understand something you present as a driver. And I say, well, explain that to me. And you explain it and say, well, you know, I hadn't really thought of that, but why not? Yeah, we could help you do that. So after they've each presented to each other, we decide what we can pick up from both companies' lists to make joint goals for the relationship. And then we develop a plan for how we're going to get there. Who from Coke, who from Cargill is going to move this initiative along? What kind of timeline, what kind of resources it's going to take, et cetera. So again, uh, we had an HBR article on the Wendy's Tyson relationship back in 2004. And Julia Kirby, our editor at HBR, put a byline in that read something like this. If your latest so-called supply chain partnership has turned out to be a disappointment or not meet expectations, as most do, perhaps it's because you didn't state your expectations in the first place. So again, I, I think... You know, they might be unrealistic expectations or they might be realistic. But the point is, if they're not stated, we can't get agreement on common goals. And everybody in the company that needs to be involved needs to have a role in, in determining what those business goals are, right? They need to be committed if you need them to make it work. So from that, we went on to how you measure and sell value. Because most of my career... I've been involved in logistics, right? Wrote a best-selling logistics textbook and taught logistics courses as well as marketing. And the thing I noticed with logistics professionals, and, and I've seen it with operations VPs and, and purchasing as well, 
is they fall into the trap of telling management how much money they've saved. I mean, the senior folks, right? The leadership team, how much money they've saved this year. And the better you get, the harder it is to come up with gee whiz numbers, right? I mean, when you're bloody awful, you close some warehouses, you reduce the number of carriers, you know, you know, the kinds of things you do, you get rid of some inventory, but, but what you do and it, well, you're doing all that is you train them to look for a pot of gold at the end of each year. And the better you get, the harder it is to come up with these gee whiz numbers. And so we looked at service improvement. Can we convert service improvements to a revenue lift and a financial benefit so we don't have to keep looking at how much money did we save, right? And so when we finished that research from about 96 till now, we've worked on this cross-functional, cross-firm view of supply chain management. And there are only two cross-functional, cross-firm, standard process frameworks out there. Ours and the SCORE model. And the SCORE model only involves three business functions, basically, right? I mean, you can say finance because you pay a bill. But both, mostly purchasing and operations and logistics. And the attractiveness of it is that it's easier to implement than ours. But this pandemic should have made it abundantly clear how foolish it is to think that you can manage a network of companies with only three business functions, all judged on the basis of how much money did you save this year, right? I think it explains how key portions of major supply chains got outsourced to single source suppliers located in a communist dictatorship. I mean, what the hell could possibly go wrong? Well, we found out, didn't we, right? We couldn't get the medical supplies. We couldn't get ventilators, right? And, and then we had to turn auto factories into making ventilators. And so you say, well, how's yours different? Well, we think the chief supply chain officer in any company ought to be the CEO. In fact, I got a letter from George Chekowitz back in the 90s when they changed their definition after they, of, of logistics after they read our first article, Supply Chain Management, Not a New Name for Logistics, saying that anybody who thinks that supply chain management's the new euphemism for logistics is woefully uninformed and misinformed. But you watch TV during this pandemic and they talk about supply chains, what would you see? You'd see a truck and they talk about how important the truckers were. You'd see a warehouse and you'd see some kid stocking a shelf in a grocery store, right? Well, that's logistics. And managing logistics in the supply chain is not supply chain management. And if you're really managing that supply chain, you're making decisions about who your key suppliers ought to be and where they should be located, who your key customers are. I mean, which customers are going to be key to our success now and in the future? That's not something you leave to purchasing and operations and logistics. I mean, nobody try to manage one company with no marketing and sales, no finance, no R&D, right? No IT. How the hell do you manage a whole network of companies with fewer business functions than it takes to manage one company? It should be logically impossible, but it's not for a whole lot of people. And I, I think like in our framework, customer relationship management and supplier relationship management form the links in the chain. And it's interesting because when we started this, we had no idea that the partnership model would be a piece of this overall supply chain management puzzle, but it turns out it is. 
And the customer relationship management process of the seller is the link with the supplier relationship management process of the buyer. And we don't want a salesperson talking to a buyer for key relationships because we can't find two people good enough. We want cross-functional involvement where R&D folks talking to R&D folks, factory folks talk to factory folks, finance people talk to finance people, ID, IT people talk to IT people, logistics people talk to logistics people, et cetera. And you know, if you compare that linkage, CRM and SRM, to the linkage in the score model, it's source and deliver, right? Well, you see, it's all transaction-based. And clearly, you want to get that stuff right. But that's not the entirety of the relationship. In fact, you know, I could ask undergraduate students, uh, and we've already said, on average, they're not as good as they used to be, right? I could ask them. If you want to measure performance of a supplier, what kinds of things would you consider? And they'd rattle off on-time delivery, fill rate, lead time, of course, because most of them were logistics majors taking this class, right? They didn't know what it was till they started taking it, right? Thought it was another logistics class, probably. Although some people in there were from finance and some from marketing. So, so I guess the word had gotten out it was more than just another logistics class. But they'd also say things like, well, you know, uh, we'd look at whether the supplier could help us improve the quality of our products so we could sell more of the units at a higher price. Well, more, more units at a higher price than increased profit. Or the same, uh, at the same price, sell more units as a way of lifting revenue. And, and they talk about, well, suppliers might uh, be able to help us innovate with new products. Of course, they might. So Coke and Cargill worked on joint R&D on a new zero-calorie sweetener called Truvia, right? And so they saw much more to the relationship than simply place an order, check to make sure it's delivered on time, they shipped everything, and sent them the money, right? So again, if, if, you, if you really delve into this, you understand that supply chain management is really about relationship management. I mean, I don't know if you've heard this. I, I've got a professor friend. I've had a, he's been a friend since the 70s in England who keeps wanting to say that it's no longer company against company. It's supply chain against supply chain. Have you heard that kind of talk? Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I know what people are trying to say, that the world's complicated and nobody's good enough to make it alone. You're only as good as your worst supplier. And you need customers who are going to grow so that you can grow your business and buy more from you, not less from you, right? So again, I, I understand what folks are trying to say, but it's technically not correct. Because if you look at major supply chains, the big guys have overlap in suppliers and in customers. Coke and Pepsi both buy rail car after rail car a sweetener from Cargill. They both buy packaging from Amcar and Core and they sell their products to Kroger and Publix and Giant Eagle and whatever, right? And so there's not an A team playing a B team. I mean, this would be like watching the Patriots play the Giants. And each quarter, some of the players switch jerseys and play for the other side, right? When the hell does that happen? And McDonald's may have 
have some dedicated supply, right? They've got some suppliers that only supply McDonald's, but they also have Coke supply them. And you probably noticed you can get Coke other places, right? Not just at McDonald's. So how do we say it's supply chain against supply chain? It's really about relationship management. If Coke manages relationships better than Pepsi, Coke's going to win more often. So that means you don't beat the stuffing out of suppliers because they've got shareholders and they want to make an honest buck too, right? You need to find a ways, ways to collaborate, how to increase the size of the pie so you both get more. Not that I take a bigger piece and you get a smaller one, right? It, it's like this goofy stuff now called supply chain finance, where you negotiate the best press, price with the supplier. You tell them you have to hold the inventory and they say, well, hold it. We're going to take six months to pay you. But, oh, don't worry, we got an arrangement with a bank because we know you can't wait six uh, months for the money. So we're going to use our good credit to get you a good rate. And the bank will pay you when you would normally get paid. And then we'll pay the bank six months from now when we would have paid you and the bank just pays you a little less, right? Well, come on. All we're doing is beating up the suppliers some more. I mean, well, it's conceivable that there might be a special case where a company has got such growth opportunities, it can't finance them itself. It can't generate enough cash from operations to take care of the growth. It doesn't, they, the owners don't want to sell shares and give up ownership. But if suppliers waited six months to get paid, we could grow the business to the point where their shareholders and our shareholders would both be better off. But that's not what's going on when Apple says we're not paying you on time or Campbell's Soup or anybody else, right? Extends payment terms. This is, there's this finance guys who've never met a customer, never met a supplier, jigger in the books. I mean, the way you make a profit is by having a well thought out strategy, well executed. It's not by finance guys, jigger in the books. So again, we think CRM and SRM are the links in the chain. And then there are our six other processes, customer service management, demand management, order fulfillment, manufacturing flow, new product development, commercialization, and returns that are coordinated through that CRM and SRM linkage. That's interesting. We, we, and I'll go back to Apex again, the classes I teach. There is a big emphasis on collaboration and partnerships and extended enterprises and those things. And two key components are CRM and SRM, but I've never really probably given it the emphasis I should. Maybe I'll change that after I talk to you today. So, and The other thing I'm, I'm tracking is uh, because we do focus, the goal of Apex is the extended enterprise. I shouldn't say the goal, but that's one of the, like, you know, the, the, the light on the mountainside. Yep. You know, if you look at the Gartner supply chain maturity model, the evolution of the four steps, I don't know if you're familiar with those, but they're trying to say everybody get to be collaborating with your partners. So it's interesting to say, what's the difference? Is it a partnership or just a good business model? So I'm going to think about that. But the industry I'm following now more from a practitioner standpoint, Doug, is it's called Gartner defined it as the multi-enterprise supply chain business networks. And it's, it's a bit of a technology play, but it's allowing, you know, different companies with different ERPs to do more collaboration, real-time collaboration, as opposed to just uh, lip service collaboration. We'll, well, see where well the technology is important, but the people are key. And it's usually when you hear somebody invested, you know, tens of millions in CRM and it was a failure was they bought a technology without having a process in place first. So the technology is an enabler. It's not a solution. Agreed. But that's kind of what I see happening is I talk about it in class a lot is this, this 
collaboration and, and again the extended enterprise but i've never really thought about how does it happen so that's you give me something to think about one thing uh, as we ramp down doug one thing i i like to get and maybe you've already answered this throughout your discussion but i could talk to you probably for another couple hours you're so boring i could actually listen to you for hours but if you had any words of wisdom for any students going to college you know thinking about careers you know should they be thinking about careers in supply chain management or there's another segment of experienced professionals that maybe are looking at career changes into supply chain management. Any suggestions or guidance for anybody in that space? Well, first of all, I guess we have to decide what supply chain management is. Right? <laughs> like I had a PhD student that even his grandmother understood supply chains now. Well, I think she's heard the words. And again, we talked about this before that usually it would be accompanied the discussion on TV with a video of a warehouse or transportation or whatever. So part of the problem with talking about careers in supply chain is, is what do people think it is? And I would say there are great opportunities in the logistics area. There are probably great opportunities in procurement. If you want to call that supply chain, you know, if you're an engineering person, probably in a manufacturing environment, but there are are also opportunities elsewhere in the business that sort of broaden your expertise, like, like working in sales for a while. I mean, there's no better way to figure out what a company's about than trying to sell its products to its customers, right? And I, I think what I would encourage people to do is, and, and this comes to the discussion of whether you want a master's degree or you whether you want an MBA, right? Because MBA, you get the whole business core. And then you get a chance to specialize in the second year versus just specialize in marketing or logistics or whatever the university you're at is calling supply chain. So I, I would get as broad a background as I could, because as you move up in the organization, it's being able to think horizontally. That's so important. And you see it everywhere. I mean, I mean uh, you can see it in terms of things that the government does where they fix one problem and they create others because of tunnel vision. And, you know, there are no more siloed organizations than business schools. I mean, we, we tell companies, you know, you need to fix this silo mentality. It's what caused the companies that were involved in the forum to say, we need to come up with this cross-functional cross-firm supply chain management framework, because one after another complained about how in their companies, the business functions didn't act like they played for the same team, that they all had their own metrics and they tried to maximize their own performance and they were hurting shareholders of the company. And it wasn't customer focused either. I, I remember we were doing, um, we did seven week long courses for a company uh, on our supply chain management framework when the first book came out, 25 executives each. And the first course, a senior guy, we quoted on the back of the book, was attended that course himself. And on Thursday night, we're going out for, for dinner and, and uh, we're, we left the university and found an off-campus place because they were, they'd been at the university you know, all week and it was now Thursday night. So uh, I'm sitting next to him on the bus, and he says, Doug, I'm getting tired. And, and I thought, uh-oh. Happily, he didn't say, I'm listening to you talk all week. Uh, but, but, but he said, you know, at our company, 
The finance guys are measured by EVA. And uh, they won't let me invest in, in plant equipment. They, they want those assets to sweat. And he said, you probably saw the Business Week article where we've got this marketing person talking about all these new SKUs we're going to be coming out with. And he said he was in charge of plants, manufacturing facilities, and logistics. He didn't have purchasing because that was a corporate function. He was responsible for a $4 billion spend, though. And he said, I'm expected to keep cost per case going south, and nobody sees the conflict. If these new products take off, how the hell does he make them? Because his plants are running hot. And so that was the kind of thing we were hearing from people. Whirlpool had this rapid delivery system called Quality Express, where they could deliver appliances anywhere in the United States to their dealers in 24 to 48 hours. And marketing never understood. I mean, Whirlpool execs could go to uh, CLM, Council of Logistics Management Meetings, and present. And everybody was saying, oh, this is great. In fact, Goodyear tried a similar kind of system based on what they were hearing from, uh, from Whirlpool. But they never convinced sales and marketing in their own company. And so they didn't quit selling the old way. I mean, how did you become a great salesperson at Whirlpool? Load the dealer up, right? Full truckloads out of factories when nobody should have been buying full truckloads out of factories, not even the volume guys. They should have been getting mixed shipments out of Quality Express locations, right? They had eight of them in the U.S. So what happened was we looked at it for Whirlpool Logistics, how inventory turns had improved in these dealerships six years after they implemented Quality Express. Well, the dealers all said, this is the best thing Whirlpool has ever done for us, right? So if somebody comes in today and wants something and we don't have it, we can get it in 24 to 48 hours. But they weren't getting the inventory turn improvements they should have been getting because the salespeople were still loading them up with truckloads, special deals, right? And, and so that's the kind of stuff that goes on in companies, right? Where you undermine the overall corporate effort because each side's got their metrics and in this case, each side being marketing and logistics. And then the finance guys, they implement EVA and they're looking at these Whirlpool Quality Express locations. These were uh, warehouses that Whirlpool leased, had Whirlpool's warehouse management system in it. They were leasing the vehicles and the third-party logistics companies, ERX and KP Logistics and uh, I think Leaseway had Orlando. They were paid a management fee. And the thing that Danny Swanson used to say was so great about this was he could call them on Friday and say, I want to start doing something different on Monday. And they'd be doing it on Monday and, and sending them a bill. And he said, if this was a company warehouse, we'd have to go to HR. We'd have to try to get people approved. Then we'd have to do a search, right? He said, we missed the opportunity in the market. So you don't want to, uh, you know, hamstring the, um, these third parties that you want to trust them and and they trust you and you ask them to do something they do it and they send you a bill and you you can take advantage of market opportunities anyway because these were leases they looked like assets to the finance guys because you have to capitalize long-term leases right and they wanted them off their books so they could improve eva and what really made it a win was they put the business up to forbid and Penske got it all. The third parties that had it lost it. But what really made it a win for Penske was they reduced the service now from, it wasn't 24 to 48 anymore. It was 48 to 72, right? And the third parties were partly to blame because they could 
they were making deliveries there a couple, three times a week. Once a year, they could have stopped and said, how much more did you buy from Whirlpool this year versus last year? And how much of that was due to the great service we're providing you with Quality Express? And then try to put a number on it that's more than just cost, right? Back to revenue and profitability. And, and the same kind of thing in supply chain management, right? We, we talked about the problem of three business functions all judged on the basis of cost reductions. Who should be responsible? Well, the leadership team of the company. Because when you're making decisions about what suppliers are key to your success and what customers are key to your success, the CEO ought to be involved in this and the leadership team, because this is all about what business you're in, right? So we're not against saving money. Save money if you can. But the real focus ought to be on value co-creation to drive revenue and profitability, because nobody ever, long-term, costs cut their way to prosperity. So again, what we need out of executives, which we don't get enough of, is horizontal thinking. And, and so, well, you need some specialization to get your first job. What's going to be the biggest help to you long-term is being able to connect the dots horizontally to see the big picture, right? And and you people can do that. And you can see it in government. You can see it in companies. You, you see it everywhere, right? Yeah, that's an ex- that's an excellent point. I, I talk to people. I say I say if you're just looking on Indeed or somewhere for a job, I say look for things called supply chain analyst. It's, you know, it's entry level, but that's a good place because it's not too specific. It's kind of like the shortstop of supply chain. You can go out and you can do different things. You can maybe you're one day you're in logistics, the next day you're in sourcing, procurement, the next day you're in manufacturing. Maybe not days, but that's right. why I like supply chain analyst. Well, and I, I've always given students the advice, if you've got more than one option, if you haven't, then I suppose there's not much of a decision to make. There's not an option. Right, right. But, but if you've got more than one option, take the one you think you're going to have the most fun doing, that you'll learn the most. This is a company that's going to invest in you versus taking the most money. Because if you're having fun, you'll put in the effort. If you put in the effort, the rest takes care of itself. I was going through old things and I, I found some, some old calendars from when I was a bit younger than I am now. And, and I couldn't believe what I was doing, right? I'd be coming in on a Friday night and leaving Sunday, and coming back on Saturday and leaving again on Sunday. And I mean, it, it might be a week in St. Charles with Anderson and then leaving. Well, there was one trip where I left the met up with El Rose from Johnson & Johnson, and we went to Bali, Indonesia from San Francisco, Singapore Air First Class. I mean, it was great. But, but I came back from Singapore and was off to Brazil. And that was life, but it didn't seem like work because I was having so much fun. Now, and I was fortunate to have a wife who put up with it. But I think that's, that's key. I, I mean, I look back at those days now and wonder how I did it because uh, I do week-long courses all by myself for companies and and one week after another be be traveling and i think the key is if you're having fun it doesn't seem like work and and and, uh, it makes it a whole lot easier to do it yeah enjoy it well you gave me a flashback when you described your travel schedule and then you said the name i they're out on fridays back on or back on Fridays out on Mondays or Sunday sometimes. That reminded me of my days at Anderson Consulting, and then you said the name. So, Well, did you ever know Bill Capasino? I, I was there when he was there. He was a bit higher than I was, but yeah. Okay. yeah. Did you, did you, how about how about Greg Owens? Did you know Greg Owens? The name. I, he I'm was, not, 
I'm not sure, uh, but Bill, Bill helped us start the International Journal of Logistics Management. Um, mm-hmm. and I. It was a journal that until we sold it to Emerald after about 15 years, we owned Okay. And uh, Bill helped us get it going by buying an ad on the back cover for Anderson Consulting. Yeah, well, that explains it because I knew he was at Anderson. I just, and I know he has that little book he used to do. It's a compilation of all of his articles. Right, right. Um, and he's yeah. passed. He's since he's since passed, correct? Right. He, he, a number of years ago now, actually. Yeah. Because yeah. I had him on my my list of people to talk to, but uh, that's the challenge. Well, I actually, uh, if I remember correctly, I think I know I wrote a letter for him. I might have even put the package together for him when he when he got to the senior service Great. So, um, yeah, he was a good guy. Yep. Well, Doug, again, I, I, I got more than I bargained for on this one. I, I got a little mini a mini course in, in business or logistics. I'm not sure what it is, but I learned a lot. I, I appreciate you taking the time, and maybe we'll have to do this again. Well, I enjoyed it as well. Thanks, Doug. Thank you. Supply Chain is Boring is part of the Supply Chain Now Network. We highlight historical events, companies, and people in supply chain management and create a picture of where the industry is headed. Interested in learning more about supply chain technology startups, mergers, acquisitions, and how companies evolve? Take a listen to Tequila Sunrise, crafted by Greg White. Or check out This Week in Business History with Supply Chain Now's own Scott Luton to learn more about everyday things you may take for granted and pick up short stories you can use as general conversation starters. The Logistics with a Purpose series puts a spotlight on neat and interesting organizations who are working toward a greater cause. If you're interested in logistics, freight, and transportation, take a listen to the Logistics and Beyond series with the Adapt and Thrive Mindset Sherpa, Jamin Alvarez. And check out the newest program, Tech Talk, hosted by industry veteran and Atlanta's own Corinne Bursa. Bursa will discuss all things digital supply chain. If interested in sponsoring this show or others on Supply Chain Now, send a note to chris at supplychainnow.com. And remember... Supply chain is boring.